In a couple of weeks, uh, I don't know the exact date, we're going to have families up here and they're going to be dedicating their kids. And somewhere in that process, when those parents dedicate their kids, I will ask them, it'll be something like this, is do you commit to when the time is right and your child is ready to lead them to a personal relationship with Christ? And every one of those parents is going to say, yep, I'm in, because that's who they are. What they don't maybe think about, and maybe a lot of us don't, is what does that child need to believe? How much do we teach them and tell them? It's not that we want to withhold them, but but honestly, what does it take? Some friends of mine, um, two theologians, um, Dr. Demarest, Dr. Lewis, were at a Evangelical Theological Society, and they were presenting there, though not at the moment. There was an individual making the presentation, and he was arguing for the necessity of the belief in the virgin birth. Now, I believe in that. But what was comical to me is Lewis and Demarest were sitting there, and Dr. Lewis leaned over to Dr. Demarest and said, how old were you when you got saved? And Demarest said, well, I think I was five years of age. And Lewis, who was not known for his... Uh, comedic, uh, you know, words, leaned over and said, you were five when you got saved? Did you have a clue what a virgin was at five? (laughs) The reality is sometimes we argue for these things and it's like, really? Is that? Now, again, I believe in it. I think the scripture affirms it. But if you were going to share the gospel, would it be Jesus Christ came in the flesh, died on the cross? And by the way, Jesus was was born of a virgin. That's a necessity for the gospel. Would you put that in? That's the question. Paul has dealt with at this point all kinds of thorny issues. And we've gone through them. Uh, Tongues and prophecy and what can happen in the worship service and order and all of these different things. And I can almost sense Paul's coming down to the end of this. And then he says in chapter 15, now brothers, I want to remind you. What does that mean? We've gone down this path before. I'm bringing this thing to a close. We've had good and healthy debate over what happens in the worship service, the role of prophecy, the role of tongues, and women speaking, all of those things. But Paul kind of brings it back, and I can, I can sense what Paul is saying is, those issues are not unimportant, they're just not essential. Whether or not you believe in tongues is not going to determine whether you spend eternity in heaven or hell. Just won't. If, if that's your place, I'm, I'm sorry for you. I'm not even close to that. Whether or not you believe in the gift of prophecy, words of knowledge, any of those things, that will not determine whether or not you go to heaven or hell. But Paul is bringing this thing to a close, this letter to the church, and he's going to send it off. And I think he can just feel this. You know what? I'm going to move back into what I think is absolutely essential. Because he goes and he says to them, I preach to you which you have received on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you're saved if you hold firmly to it. Parents, this is a non-negotiable. This is what we have to teach our children. Whether or not you teach your kids a score of other things, that's marvelous. Teach them the whole counsel of God's word. 
But Paul is going to summarize for us as we come to the end of this text, and we'll spend a number of weeks in 15. And the reason is, is because he's now dealing with the issue of not preferences of how the worship service should operate. Not even secondary issues of things that I think are secondary, your view on the spiritual gifts. But now he's moved back into the essentials. This is something that determines where you're going to spend eternity. And that's an essential. That is something that you can't fudge on. It's something that you can't alter on. It's something you got to get right. And the reason is because the person you love and the kids that you raise and the person you're married to or the people in your family are just folks that you work with. They may call you a bigot. They may call you closed-minded. They may call you a score of things. The question you have to wrestle with, am I willing to risk their uncomfortableness or even their accusation that I'm a bigot for the sake of where they spend eternity? Or am I going to alter my view of the gospel and damn them to hell simply so they like me? Paul begins, and he wants to define, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. You might say it this way, Paul. What I want to pass on to you is that which is critical. It's essential. It's the gospel. And he begins the gospel with Christ. It's, Christ is not the second or the surname of Jesus. Christ is the role that he filled. Christ. What does it mean? It means the Messiah. It means the one that's sent from God. It's the one that God sent to the earth. It's the one that was prophesied. It was the one that was predicted. It was the one that the scriptures wrote about. It's the one that the nation of Israel has been waiting for. It's the one. He says, if you miss this one, you've missed it all. This is the one, Christ. Colossians chapter 1, so beautifully in this, what I would call him, describes who Paul is talking about. It's in Colossians 1 verse 15 and following. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. That means he's eternal. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have what? Supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. All of him, everything about God dwells in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things on earth things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Paul is telling us, you got to get this one right. You can't miss this one because this is the one sent by God. And, and if you describe Jesus and you say things like Jesus is a marvelous teacher, yeah, that's true, but that's not who he really is. He's not just a good teacher. There's honestly been a score of good teachers. He lived an incredible life, a, a, a life that has impacted thousands of people. 
But if that's all he is, you've missed him. It would be like if you came to a child and you said, hey, tell me who your parents are. Well, uh, my mom is a phenomenal cook. I mean, uh, dad, I mean, he's, he can fix anything. And uh, mom and dad drive us everywhere. They're, they're marvelous. They're, they're great parents. And all of that could be true, but they're fundamentally missing something that is critical. My mom and dad have all authority in my life. Meaning, they are responsible for me. They care for me. They have authority in my life. They tell me what time I go to bed. They tell me when I can drive. They tell me who, everything about them. If a child tells you, my parents are really good cooks. They're marvelous at driving me around town. They've missed who their parents really are. Now, our culture wants to shape that differently, don't they? There's a number of states that are passing these laws that if your child has a different passion than you do as an adult for gender identification, the state now can legally take that child away from you. Something we have presumed all of our lives and virtually all of our country's life is what? We have presumed the authority of parents. So if a child describes their parents and they have anything less then my mom and dad have complete authority over my life. They've missed who their parents are from God's perspective. And if we do the same thing to Jesus, we've missed him. If he's not the one sent by God, if he's not sinless, if he didn't die for us, if he's not the one who has the capacity of saving you, if he is merely a great teacher, if he's a marvelous model of how to live your life, then you've missed Christ. And what's at stake, Paul says? The differences between heaven and hell. And there's going to be a lot of people, sadly, that are going to be in hell who had a very fond view of Jesus. He was a marvelous person, wonderful lifestyle. He cared about refugees and all of these different things that we will describe Jesus. My friends, if he's not God, in the flesh, you've missed him. If he's merely a great humanitarian, you've missed him. And that's why Paul says this is the gospel, this is essential. He's the one sent from God and Christ is the one who died for our sins. He goes on and he says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now this statement presumes something that's terribly obvious, but I think it needs to be stated. And it's simply this, you and I are sinful. If he died for sins, the only conclusion would be is if you're gonna remain sinless is that you gotta think the rest of the world is, is a bunch of pagans and somehow God created you sinless. But I don't think any of us in here would argue for that. I'm sinful. And by the way, there are responsible or there are accountable wages that come with my sin. The Bible says that what? For the wages of sin is death. And I got to be held responsible for that. My mom taught me that when you did something wrong, you have to own it. When I was a kid one day, I was kind of mad at my neighbor and I whipped my shoe off. It was a size 12 and I hucked that shoe at my neighbor and I was going to bing him on his head. 
He deserved it. The only bad part is, is that he's a pretty good athlete and he ducked and my shoe sailed over his head and went right through his parents' window. And, and I'll guarantee you, when my neighbor, Mrs. Anderson, went up to my mother and said, Mark broke a window and he needs to pay for it. I guarantee you, my mom did not say, well, tell me about the context of what happened. Did your son provoke my son? My mom had nothing to do with that. Did you break that window? Yes, I did. Good, pay for it. Judge was done. Jury's out. She had no problem. We have a culture that doesn't want to own responsibility for virtually anything. And there's a problem because if I'm not sinful and if I'm not held accountable and responsible, then to be quite honest with you, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross means nothing. If I can excuse my way out of anything and if I'm not held responsible for anything, we're in trouble because then Christ died for nothing. But Paul says he died, the one who died for our what? Sins. Christ paid for those sins. He paid for those sins because I was in debt and I needed to own it. I think I shared with you not too long ago, um, I was pretty delighted I got called for jury duty. I was thrilled, to be quite honest with you. I didn't think I was an American citizen. How do you go 60 years and never serve on a jury duty? I was kind of feeling left out. And so when they called me, I was like all happy. I walk in there and the lady thought, you know, I was like, sir, why have you, did you win the lottery? Yes, I got called to jury duty. She's like, no one is that happy. I am. In fact, I cannot wait to say guilty. (laughs) So we go through the whole process. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just like, I'm, I'm like a kid in a candy store. It's like, I can't wait. I can't wait for the judge. And the whole thing was just enamoring to me. So we walk in and the defense attorney, she's looking at me and she starts asking me some questions. Everybody else. Um, I, I had no idea. I had no idea that the truth can get you kicked out of this room. And she asked me this question, how do you feel about authority? And, and I know what this individual was up for. I uh, sure hope that the individual's not here in church today. Um, but um, I, I, she, she was uh, up for a charge that she uh, disorderly conduct, did not listen to a police officer, et cetera, et cetera. And it went south. And so this defense attorney asked me, she just looked at me, she goes, how do you feel about authority? And I said, I like it. Now, at that point, I was done. But she felt for some reason to draw this painful departure out just a little bit. And uh, she said, do you think a person needs to abide by authority in all circumstances? And I said, well, let me tell you what, if that judge who scares me, he told me to do something, I'd do it. Why? Because I respect his authority. I'm in his courtroom. And I would surmise that, to be quite honest with you, if I'm under a person's authority, I really happen to like authority. Man, I was so far done, I was out the door. (laughs) Now, I really didn't want to go out the door. To be honest with you, I wanted to be there when they all said, guilty. Because you see, if I'm not guilty, then Christ paid for nothing. If I can't come to God and say, I've sinned against you. But the wages of sin is death. And if I can't own the fact that I deserve that, 
then grace won't mean nothing. And I will be casual about it and moderately indifferent. The one who died for our sins is Christ. And Paul makes this phrase according to the scriptures. Now it's interesting because he says this a number of times. He says later, verse four, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Now, why would Paul put that in there? It's not like he had a bunch of ink that he wanted to use up. Why is it important that we understand that Christ, sent by God, died for our sins, according to the scriptures? What's that phrase all about? Paul's wanting to make sure that you don't miss Jesus. And what he goes back to is there's been this long line of predictions. We call them prophecies about Christ. And God wanted to make sure that the nation of Israel and you didn't miss Jesus. Why? Because heaven and hell are on the line. Where you spend eternity is on the line. And so God wanted to make sure that you knew there is going to be a Messiah who comes and you can't miss him. And so when he talks about according to the scriptures, he's saying, I want you to go back and realize that everything I'm talking about has been prophesied about years, hundreds of years earlier. Like He would come from the lineage of David as is taught in Psalm 89 and 132. Like he would crush the serpent's head as is taught in Genesis 3. Like he would be the only begotten son as is taught in Psalm 89. Like he would do miraculous acts like calming the sea as was prophesied in Psalm 107. Like his hands and feet would be pierced that was prophesied and foretold in Psalm 22. Like the fact that his garments would be parted, it was taught in Psalm 22. And the fact that he would cry out to God, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Hundreds and hundreds of years, it's recorded in Psalm 31. Why is that important? It's because my friends, even righteous people can miss Jesus. Do you remember the guy, John the Baptist, dressed weird, had a strange diet? He was the cousin of Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said about John? He said this of John, and I'll paraphrase it. There has not been a person born of a woman that exceeds the righteousness and nobility of John. That's pretty high praise from Jesus. There is no one that is better than John. Go to Matthew 11. And John's hanging out there in prison. And he's trying to put together Jesus, Messiah, deliverer with John, who was his forerunner in prison, knowing that he's probably going to get his head taken off. And he's trying to put all of this together. And he calls his disciples together And he says to them, would you go ask Jesus, whom John baptized, who John said, I'm not worthy to to tie your sandals. 
So it's not like John had no knowledge of Jesus. John is in prison, sends his disciples, would you go and ask Jesus, are you really the one? Now, why would John the Baptist, who Jesus says there's not been a person born of a woman that surpasses the nobility, the righteousness of John? John almost missed Christ. Why? It's because sometimes you have an expectation of what Jesus is going to look like and what he's going to do. And when you're in prison and maybe when you have cancer and you're going to die and you look at that and you say, you know what, God, if you really love me, you would heal me. God, if you really are who you said you're going to, you're not going to let me get beheaded in a prison. Here's the point. If John can almost miss Jesus, then you and I can too. And that's why Paul says, I want you to know according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. When Jesus got word from John's disciples and they came to him and said, hey, John is in prison and he's kind of, he wants to ask this question. Doesn't want to offend you, Jesus. But Jesus, are you really the one? John's just wondering. And I love Jesus' response. It's the kindest response that he could ever give. He doesn't tell him, yes, I am. He says, I want you to go back and tell John The lame are going to walk. The blind are going to see. The gospel is being preached to the poor. What did Jesus do? He quoted according to the scriptures. Why? Because he knew. All you have to do is tell John what I'm doing. And John knows the Bible. And when John puts it all together, I know John. When you tell him the scriptures and you tell him what's happening, John will come to the right conclusion. And that's Paul's point. If you know the scriptures, if you know the prophecies, if you've done your homework, if you've read the Old Testament for hundreds, couple of thousand years, if you go back and you look at all of the predictions of Christ, then when you look at that person on the cross, you're not going to say, wow, bad day. No, you're going to say, you're the Messiah. Because everything about Christ's life was prophesied. And that's why Paul says, You must understand the nature of the gospel. It's not something we dreamed up. It's something that God prophesied for thousands of years. And Christ's life is the fulfillment of those scriptures. Specifically, what was it? That number one, he was buried. He's buried because you have to have a real death. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. And if Jesus didn't die, then God would have been a liar. Because God told Adam and Eve back in the garden, if you eat of this fruit, you're going to die. Death entered into this world. Just this past week, I was having a conversation with somebody who was troubled, understandably troubled. It's been a long-term debate and struggle. Why does God allow bad things why, why would God allow our friend David to have a heart attack? And why would God allow a doctor, a, probably a really skilled doctor, to put the tube in the wrong place? Why would God allow that? And the answer, it's not very comforting in some ways. It's very technical. It's simply this. When God made the choice to validate Adam and Eve's volition and they sinned, God said death came into this world. 
And God didn't say death is only going to come to the really, really nasty people. He said death is going to come to everyone because the wages of sin is death. And that's why Christ had to be buried. That's why that death had to be real. That's why it wasn't just a metaphysical kind of sleep. It was a real death. He really died. Why? Because if Jesus didn't die, then God would have been a liar. He was buried. It was prophesied. Isaiah 53, 9 makes this statement. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Isaiah looked all the way down and told them the Messiah was going to be killed. Why? Because the wages of sin is death and somebody had to pay it. But the scripture also says he was buried and he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. I love the kindness of God. Let me give you all these signposts. He's going to be sent by God. He's going to be killed. He's going to be buried. I'll even tell you about his burial. And then he's going to be raised, not on the second day, not on the fourth day, not a week later, not a month later. It is on the third day. Just in case you want to know, is this really the Messiah? And the scriptures promise us. Why is his resurrection important? Because it validates that he was who he said he was. If you look at the resurrection... It is the distinguishing factor of all other faiths. Muhammad, still dead. Buddha, dead. Joseph Smith, dead. We can dig up their grave. Jesus, no bones. It's not dead. And if you want to just compare, I understand that, and it's a true statement. One day when Lewis was was debating with some friends, and somebody asked, uh, C.S., what what is the distinguishing factor of Christianity from all other faiths? And he said, that's easy, it's grace. And I agree with him. Grace is the single distinguishing factor. But where does grace come from? What is the application? What is the source of grace? It is the death and the resurrection of Christ. It's the willingness of Jesus to be buried, but it's also the power of God that raised him from the grave. And not only that, because of his resurrection, we know that his sacrifice was sufficient as a payment for our sin. There is nothing better than getting a deed paid in full. And if you've ever gotten that on your car, for those of you who have done so well and you got that on your house and you realize paid in full, I don't have to pay another stupid mortgage payment. Man, oh man, I guarantee you when you get that paid in full, you don't just sit down and go, ah, yawner. No, let's go out and celebrate and spend more money. (laughs) When you stand before Christ, when you stand there and you look Christ into the eyes, And he reaches out his arms. And you're going to know it's Jesus. You know the difference between Jesus and Peter. When Peter says, hey, come on in, all impulsive people over here. Yay, I'm going with Peter. But you're going to know Jesus because you're going to see his arms. And you're going to look at his hands. Everyone does. And when he hugs you and he welcomes you, And he said, my blood 
has forgiven you and covered you. You're going to have the biggest relief of your life because Christ was raised and eternal life is real and there is indeed life beyond the grave. I don't know how many funerals I've done. I think it's about 350. And every time I do a funeral, every time, I have a moment somewhere if I'm looking in the casket and I see this person, if I look at their ashes or whatever the case may be, I'll have this moment. It happens every time and I will think, I get to talk to you again. And I let my mind wander down this beautiful path imagining what their first days were like in heaven. And I think they've met Christ and they've met their husband or they've met their family. They, they've seen their kids. They, sometimes when they go home, they, they had three or four. I, I know one woman, I remember she had five miscarriages. And I thought to myself, you know what the glory of her home going, one of the glories is gonna be? There's gonna be five people that are gonna run up to her and say, mom, Mom, welcome home. And she's going to love those. And I know there's not marriage and all of that stuff in heaven, but to be quite honest with you, I understand. And God has given me a special dispensation that Carrie and I still get to room together. (laughs) I asked him and he said, if you ask anything in Jesus' name, it shall be done. (laughs) Try it. Oh, but my friends, we have a child in heaven. Never met her, never met him. That's real. Why do I know that? Because Jesus walked out of the grave. And because of that, we can say with confidence that Jesus is the true way to this life beyond the grave. Now, here's the tough part. Not everyone out there is going to like this. And some of people are going to call you narrow-minded. They're going to call you a bigot. They're going to call you a fascist. They're going to call you a lot of things. And you have to ask yourself a question. And this is where it gets really personal. Am I willing to risk their hatred? Because what's at stake is their damnation to hell. Or will I alter And go down the path that maybe Jesus died for all people. They just don't know it. Love wins. Or maybe I go down the path of, you know what? God just, he validates sincere faith. Not sure what faith you have, but as long as you're sincere. And you know all the paths that people take. But the reason why Paul comes back to this and he is so clear and he's so kind to us, but he says, dear friends, by this gospel you're saved. If you hold firmly to the word, you alter Jesus and you're damning them to hell. You, you, you shave just a little bit and you accept that Jesus died for all people. They just don't know it. And you've put their approval of you ahead of their eternal life in heaven. Shame on you. Because you've damned them 
simply so that they would like you. Christ was raised. And because of that, Paul goes on and finishes this gospel. In kind of an interesting way, he says, and by the way, uh, when he goes through this passage, he says, um, after Christ rose, he appeared to Peter. Now, I don't know why he chose Peter, other than maybe Peter was so crushed by what he did. Maybe Jesus just wanted to get back to his friend, Peter. And it's like, you know, Peter, I'll see you first because frankly, you're just beating yourself up. But he appears to Peter and then to the 12. Verse six is an interesting statement. He goes, then after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. They're not still living, you understand. That phrase... 500, all at the same time. Why do you think he said that? Well, one of the things that people dream up is this concept of trauma-induced hallucination. The idea that you are so traumatized that you can literally, if you will, wish something into your mind. You can see things that aren't really there. Now, I'm, I'm not suggesting that's not real. But there's some people who think that Jesus really didn't raised from the dead. He, he wasn't alive. It's just that they so desperately wanted him to be alive that they kind of hallucinated his life. Now, to be honest with you, if, if all Jesus did is appeared to Peter, I'd say, yeah, that's probably, that's possible. If he appeared maybe to the 12, okay. But ah, Paul, wanting you to not miss the Messiah says he appeared to 500 people all at the same time. Why would he say that? Ask any psychiatrist today, any psychologist, and ask them this question. Has there ever been a mass hallucination? And they will tell you no. No one would ever document that there's ever been. Has there been a singular hallucination? Yes. Has there been a trauma-induced hallucination? Uh, yes. Has there ever been a mass hallucination? No. Why is that important? Because my friends, you can validate the truthfulness of Christ's resurrection. 500 people saw him at the same time. In other words, this is truth you can believe. This is essential truth that leads us to really some critical conclusions. And let me give you three. Number one, what you and I believe matters. It just does. It matters. It matters what you believe. It matters what you believe about Christ. You can't alter this thing. You can't fudge on it. You can't go out there and say, well, I, I, I know God loves sincerity. And No, no, you can't say that. God has decided to save people through the death and the resurrection of his son, through the gift of his life. And if you offer anything less than that, you're not being truthful. Belief matters. And a specific belief. Secondly, salvation is a gift that we must personally receive. Paul makes this statement to them. He says, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Now I can have a gift and I want to give to you, but if I give it to your sister, your sister owns the gift, not you. 
If your grandparents have received the gift of salvation and they are walking with Christ, praise God for your grandparents, but God doesn't have any grandchildren. He just doesn't, his children. And so the fact is, every person in this room has to make this decision. What am I going to do with Jesus? Have I trusted him? Have I received this gift? Have I personally received this gift? Not do you believe in God. Not do you go to church. Not is your wife saved. The question is you. Have you ever talked with God and said, thank you for not giving up on this sinner? Thank you for sending your son to die on that cross so that I can spend an eternity with you. Thank you for shedding your blood, Jesus, taking my death that I deserved and you died. One of the most cruel deaths in the world. That was for me. I received that. Have you done that personally? And third, the gospel is the major. Don't compromise on it. And don't make minor issues major. We're going to have all kinds of things that we kind of delight in together and we'll wrestle with together as a church. But friends, if I get knocked upside the head by a two by four and I start altering Jesus, if the deacons haven't removed me, please do it yourself. If I alter Christ and I offer you a gospel, something other than that, go to another church. Make the majors the major. And when you get to the minors, have heated discussion, have vigorous discussion, but don't make it a major. That's why Paul distinguishes this gospel. This gospel is, determines whether you spend heaven or hell. Nail that one. And be gracious and humble in the others. But don't give up on the gospel. Doesn't mean you have to be mean. Doesn't have to mean you, you pin people back into a corner. But it, what it does mean is you can't compromise. And when they come to you and they they look at you and say, I I just can't imagine that God is that narrow. I said, well, I can't either. The problem is, is that's his description. He's the one who says, when Jesus responded, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that must be our commitment. That's the gospel. That God sent his son, that he died He was buried, he was raised, and he appears and offers that life to all of us. So for a moment, I want you to just bow your heads with me. And like in the first service, I want to give you the opportunity, because some of you have never received this gift personally. And just like in the first service, I believe that there are people today who have never said, Jesus, I want to receive your death, your resurrection for the payment of my sin. How do you do that? It's very simple. We just say together, Father, thank you for not giving up on me. 
Thank you for sending your perfect son to die on a cross for the payment of my sin. And thank you for that gift of forgiveness and the promise that I'll spend eternity with you because Christ walked out of that grave. I received that gift of forgiveness. And I thank you that today my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And I rejoice that I've now become a daughter or a son of God. Now, if you prayed that prayer, I just want you to lift up your hand and say, yeah, that was me today. That was me. That's why I came. I came because God wanted to let me know that he died for me. And Lord Jesus, would you grant those that raise their hand the joy of knowing that they're now yours. But also, God, would you give us, this church, the opportunity to tell our brothers and sisters, our family and friends about a God who loves them so much that he sent his son for them. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.